Good morning. I'm excited about part two. Um, I enjoyed studying, looking at it. If you've ever looked at the story of Esther, I don't know when's the last time you've just sat down with your Bible and just read it through. Um, but I would encourage you just to take the time to do so. It has been uh, special to see the hand of God and as he moves in the lives of his people. This morning, before I start, I would like to just bow one more time. Father, I acknowledge it is your spirit and not my words that bring power. And I pray for that spirit in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a, just like there's a large interest in a story of unlikely common girls who through beauty and character, somehow brought to the realm at the right time to do great things. There's also uh, an interest in our world today of heroes. People who, uh, men and women, boys and girls, who do great things at peril to themselves or someone else. They do great things to save. You know, probably uh, one of the most famous heroes from American history, at least a famous hero, is a lady by the name of Clara Barton. Um, and uh, I don't know if you are familiar with her story. I think her home, her home place isn't too far from here. It's here in Massachusetts. But uh, Clara Barton um, was fearless in caring for the wounded in Battlefield. And in 1881, she actually founded the Red Cross at age 59, and then led it for the next 23 years. Uh, just a very special lady. And the Red Cross website had something to say about Clara Barton. I wanted to read it to you briefly. Barton was never satisfied while with remaining with medical units at the rear of the column, hours or even days from a fight. At Antietam, she ordered the drivers of her supply wagons to follow the cannon and traveled all night, actually pulling ahead of the military medical units. While the battle raged, she and her associates dashed about bringing relief and hope to the field. She nursed, comforted, and cooked for the wounded. In the face of danger, she wrote, I always tried to succor the wounded until medical aid and supplies could come up. I could run the risk. It made no difference to anyone if I were shot or taken as a prisoner. Very bold woman. A hero, one who was willing to put her life on the line for those around her all the time. You know, there is another hero that we're going to be looking at. But before we do, I'd like to read a quotation from uh, one of the books I was reading this week. It said this, God sees the needs of his people long before those needs become a reality. I, I hope, you, hope you just took in that first sentence here. God sees the needs of his people long before those needs become a reality. What that means is right now you have needs that are going to come up that you don't know about and God's already seen them. Then it says this, he providentially places those he can use in strategic places so they will be available when the crisis unfolds. God placed Esther in the place before the crisis unfold. And there's a question that I'm going to ask you at the end today. And so I might as well ask it now so you know what I'm going to ask at the end, and that is, is it possible that God has placed you where he's placed you for such a time as this? Is it possible that God has placed you 
where he's placed you for such a time as this. If you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Esther, we will be starting in Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Just last week, we left in a very bad place. There was a man named Haman who decided that he was going to do whatever it took to wipe out the Jewish race. Uh, This was genocide was his plan. And so he planned that in one day, all the Jews of the empire of Persia would be killed. That was 200, excuse me, 2 million people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of killing. And right after he did that, it says that Haman sat down with the king of Ahasuerus and they had a drink together just to relax and think about the fact that two million people were going to die. Amazing. And where is God when this happens? I would like to suggest that he's there already preparing. You know, uh, the response, however, of Mordecai, you'll notice in verse 1. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a bitter cry. Now, it's ancient custom. We don't do it today. But when something bad happens, you would actually take your clothes and just rip them. And it was a sign that something terrible had taken place. And you can see this in many places throughout the Bible. We see it uh, I'm looking at some stories right now. (laughs) Jacob did it. Joshua did it. David did it. And then after that, he does something else. After he rends his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now remember, Mordecai is in a fairly good position in court. He would have had decent clothes. But he took off his nice clothes and put on sackcloth. I don't know if any of you know what sackcloth is. Some of you know what sackcloth is. If any of you have worked around farms, you might have an idea what a sackcloth is, right? A feed sack would be similar to that. And so it's rough, coarse material. And he dressed in that. Then he took ashes and put it on. He's completely disfiguring himself, looking terrible. But it's to show how terrible he feels. It's a profound tragedy is taking place. Then the Bible says he went out into the midst of the city Mordecai does not sh- doesn't hide his connection with the Jews or hide his response. He's letting everybody know, I don't like this. Does that make sense? This is not something that's good for me. It's not something that's good for my people. And it wasn't just Mordecai. It says in verse 3 that the whole empire was doing it. Every province where they read this, there were Jews, sackcloth and ashes, wailing at what had just taken place. Esther, meanwhile, doesn't know what's going on. You can read about this in the next few verses. And she, I don't know how she doesn't know what's going on. Do you get the idea that sometimes that if you're in, the, in the, um, the apartment for ladies there in the palace, you may not know what's going on with the rest of the empire? It come, almost comes across that they're, I'm going to use this word cloistered for the lack of a better term, okay? Um, stuck in there. Well, anyhow, Esther finds out through her maids that there is a cousin of hers named Mordecai who is dressed in sackcloth and ashes and he's wailing throughout the city. So she sends a set of new clothes out to him. Right? Here, Mordecai, I've got some new clothes for you. He refuses them and sends them back. And then it says that she sent out a, uh, a eunuch, a, one of the messengers for her. I like to say that she uh, couldn't connect with them any other way, so she used the messenger. 
uh, just like some of us use messenger today, but not messenger, a messenger, right? Anyhow, I digress. Um, why? She couldn't come out, and he couldn't go in. You weren't allowed to go in anywhere near the king's palace with sackcloth and ashes on. So the messenger said, why are you doing this? What's happening? What's taking place? And he tells her. Uh, he tells the eunuch. The eunuch goes and tells Esther. Gives a copy of the degree that was written. And um, kind of interesting what was said. Verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her, interesting words, to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. This is four years since she's been made queen. Four years she's been queen. During these four years, what kind of witness do you think Esther has had on the royal household? You're welcome to respond. You think it was a good one? I think so. Esther 2.15 says that whoever saw Esther liked her. And I always find that fascinating. Because, I mean, her competitors liked her. Her handmaidens liked her. Everyone who saw Esther thought she was a really neat person. So for four years, her character has been in the midst of this, can I use the word, wicked place. Ahasuerus is not like you call a godly husband, right? And so here is Esther in the midst of all this, and her light is shining, and I believe because of that, she actually has a chance in speaking to the king. You know, there is uh, some other things that are, are interesting here. Uh, this is a statement I read this morning. It said, everything depended on the quiet witness borne by her life during the past four years and upon her tact, patient, and good judgment now. Just because your life is quiet now doesn't mean that it doesn't have force. Just because there's not trial in your life now doesn't mean that your life isn't showing forth character. How you live now is preparing you for what happens next. And that's what we see taking place with Esther. And then these famous words, and this is the words that we would read. Mordecai, Mordecai excuse me, speaks to Esther, and he says this. Do not think in your heart, this is verse 13, that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Just because you're the queen, don't think you're going to get away with this. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know what? I told you to be quiet, Esther, when you first went. But now I'm telling you it's time to speak up. And it could be that God brought you here, Esther, just for this. Maybe your whole life is focused on the one thing. You know, last week I mentioned that even though we, we read our storybooks about how Esther became queen, and that's the high part of most of our children's storybooks. Esther became queen. That's awesome. Really, the focus of the story is not the fact that Esther's a queen. The real focus of the story is that Esther is used as a savior for her people. In a time of incredible trial, God raised up incredible light by the name of Esther. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting here. Um, 
she told Mordecai that, you know, you're not allowed to go in to see the king. If you go in to see the king and he doesn't want to see you, you die. In fact, he doesn't have to not want to see you. He just does have to not acknowledge you. So um, if the king was sitting here and someone walks in the door and the king sees them standing there at the back and doesn't say anything to them, they're removed and executed. That's just the way it worked. Now, I guess it was to protect the throne, make sure no people came in to hurt the throne. I think kings are always worried about being killed in those days. But the only way to be safe, once you stepped into his eyesight, the only way to be saved is if he put his scepter out and accepted you. And who knows if he was in a good, nude, good, uh, good mood or not, right? If you come into Hajuwaris, you're not really guaranteed he's happy. And then there's something interesting, too. Do you notice Esther said this? You might read this in the story. Esther said, I haven't been to see the king for 30 days. That's a little hint that maybe his affection towards her has kind of dropped off a little bit. Does that make sense? So he's maybe not feeling affectionate towards me. Um, I'm not supposed to go there anyhow. This isn't really going to be a good opportunity for me to go. And that's when Mordecai said, you know, maybe you're brought here for such a time as this. Um, can, can you come before God's throne at any time? Aren't you glad that King Ahasuerus and God are not alike each other? Amen. I mean, the Bible says in Hebrews 4.16 that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We don't have to walk in there and say, am I going to get it? You know, some people still pray like that. And if you do, I want to encourage you, please stop. Come boldly before God. Don't be scared. You say, well, I, I, I could die. No. Our God is always willing to accept those who come to him. Always willing. Unlike King Ahasuerus, God is totally different. You can come boldly before us. Let's not forget that. I think it's important for us. You know, there's a commentator made this sentence, and I love this. Because the Lord loved his people, he made Esther queen. Because the Lord loved his people, he made Esther queen. Not every Jewish girl had that calling, but Esther did. She wasn't called to the kingdom to advance her selfish whims. She was called to the kingdom to risk her life. She wasn't born to be a queen. She was born to be to save her people at a risk of her own life. That's why Esther existed. You know why Esther stands out in our story? Because Esther is unselfish. She is. I mean, let's think about it. The life of a queen or any other ladies that were in the king's palace was simply simple. Make the king happy when you're with him and then please yourself when you're not. You have all the food you want, all the clothes you want, all whatever you want, all at your fingertips. It's an easy life. Just don't rock the boat, right? That is the life that Esther could have lived. However, Esther was not spoiled by her rapid ascent from orphan girl to queen. Matthew Henry states this. We should, every one of us, consider for what end God has put us in the place where we are and study the answer to that end. 
And when any particular opportunity of serving God in our generation offers itself, we must, not, we must take care that we do not let it slip. For we were entrusted with it that we might improve it. Consider for what end God has put you in the place where you are. You know, you're sitting in a pew this morning. A seat, no pews. You're sitting in a nice cushy seat, okay? God has a reason for your existence beyond sitting here. You're not just here because you happen to float along and chance determined that you show up at the Cape Cod Church in September of 2021. That's not why. God has a plan for your life. You exist for a reason. I don't always know the reason God brought me into existence. And you may not either, but know that there is a reason. God has a plan for us. So Esther makes her famous decision. I love it. Thank you, Victor, for reading it. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. This is verse 16. And fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, um, I love this about Esther. She did not depend upon her beauty, her wit, to win the king. She said, Mordecai, if I'm going to go in, I need you to fast three days, and I need to fast. By the way, fasting was always connected with something in the Bible. It was connected with seeking God. So when it says, I'm fasting, even though the word God is not used in the book of Esther, there's clear implications that I am approaching God and saying, God, I need your help. I need your help. And so that is what we see Esther doing here. Um, We are not, this is a a, a great, uh, there was a, a church assembly in 1891, And at the church assembly, a speaker by the name of Ellen White said this. We are not to sit in calm expectancy of oppression and tribulation. Wow, I mean, this is some deep thinking, and I just want to touch on it briefly, and we'll come back out. We are not to sit in calm expectancy of oppression and tribulation and fold our hands, doing nothing to avert the evil. Those are good words for us today, is it not? Let our united cries be sent up to heaven. Pray and work and work and pray. When God places the challenge in your life, just don't sit back and say, okay, I submit, let everything fall apart, so be it. No, take your voice and say, God, help me. Give me courage to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to be the right thing at this time. Esthers are needed today. You were placed here for such a time as this. Esther puts on her royal robes. Uh, The very fact that it says she put on her royal robes, it makes me think that she might have been in sackcloth and ashes too. I can't prove that. But she puts on her royal robes. She stands in the inner 
court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So he's sitting there on his throne. He's facing the entrance to the house, and she starts walking to the door. And you can imagine the murmur outside those doors. Here is the beautiful Queen Esther. They remember, four years later, she won the beauty pageant, right? She was the best one. And here she's walking through. There's a determination look in her face as she's walking towards the doors. People are stepping aside for her, her and her retinue. And as they're walking closer and the doors open up, she walks in and there she determines, I'm going to stand for God and for my people. What a powerful time. And King Ahasuerus looks and he does what we knew he would do, right? He puts the scepter out. He's not going to refuse his beautiful queen. But for her, she did not know. I, I find this interesting about Esther. He, he does something that kings in, in that custom did. Um, what's it say in verse 3? What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request that she'll be giving you up to half the kingdom? If the king told you, what's your request? Up to half of the kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. Wouldn't you just spill the beans right then and get it taken care of? But she chooses not to. She's a wise woman. She realizes that, yeah, you don't do that in the middle of the palace with everyone listening. I need to set the tone. I need to get an opportunity to impress his heart and maybe give a little bit of curiosity. I have found that ladies are not bad at creating curiosity. Am I right? And so that is what she's doing. She's creating a little bit of curiosity for the queen, king. And she said, you know what, king? How about you? I want to invite you to my house. Now, just think about this. She wants to sit and eat with the king. And at the beginning of the story, Vashti was demoted for not coming to a feast with the king. Of course, totally different scenario. I understand. So here is Esther. She says, king, I'd like you to come. And then she says, and bring Haman, the prime minister, and that, that gives the king a little bit to puff up in pride. Think about it. She approves of my choice of prime minister. Maybe. I don't know what he's thinking. But I can tell you, Haman's thinking, this is really good news. No one else gets to eat with a king and queen. Their private dinner, and I'm invited. I would have had a couple warning bells coming off in my mind. If it's a pri What king and queen wants you with their private dinner? Unless you're part of the dinner. You know, this is not good news. But he didn't catch that. He's thinking, this is good. I'm, I'm liking at it. Um, and how do I know this? Uh, verse 9 of chapter 5 says, Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. He's like, yes. But something changed Haman's mind. As he was walking out, there he saw that pesky Mordecai. Yes? The one who's determined I'm not going to worship anyone but God. Not even to some kind of worshipful bow, just not going to do it. And so Mordecai is sitting, actually this time he's not sitting, he's, he's standing. And he doesn't even stand up when Haman walks by. And Haman gets angry. He goes home and he complains to his wife. Uh, by the way, this is something about Haman you're going to see oftentimes. He and his wife are confidants. Um, and she gives him some good advice a little bit later. Uh, not good advice, but why she saw what was coming. He goes home and he brings his wife in. He brings his friends and said, oh, look at me, I'm wealthy. I have everything I want. I'm even eating with the king and the queen. You can't beat this. Oh, by the way, this took place right after he ate with the king and queen. Let me get my storyline straight. So um, they have eaten together, okay? 
He's after this feast, the first meal with Esther. Esther said, I want you to come back tomorrow night and I'll give you the thing. Again, extending that, that as far as she can. Haman goes home, he's complaining, and his wife said, you know, here's what you need to do. Get rid of Mordecai. Simple. Build the gallows right now. Tonight. I don't know if you ever thought about this. The gallows were constructed in one night. 75 feet tall. Now, they could have been put on top of something else, but the height at the top was 75 feet so people could see it. He wanted everyone to see his enemy hanging. He had already decided we're going to wipe out the Jews, but I've just tired of Mor Mordecai. I had a great night with the king and queen, and then I saw Mordecai, and it messed everything up. I can't handle this. I want to just rid of Mordecai. His wife said, set it up 75 feet high, and then tomorrow morning, break of dawn, go in and say that you want to take his life. Easy, simple, nothing to it. And Mordecai said, thank you, wife and friends. That's good news. And so they started. What would have it been like that night? Can you imagine listening? In the, by the way, by the, it was built at his house, okay? He lives in the, can I just say this? In the nice side of town. So there, maybe even on his property, he's building these gallows up. There's workmen building it all night long. The sound of clanging hammers, tools, they're putting this whole thing together, and the next morning, well, the next morning he has a surprise. But let's go to chapter six. Chapter six. Um, I, I love this, this part of the story. That night, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Esther probably wasn't sleeping either for that matter, right? Esther knows that the next night she's going to be talking to the king. Haman has gallows being built, and Ahasuerus isn't sleeping. That's what our story tells us. And as he's tossing and turning, can't sleep, he, uh, by the way, when kings can't sleep, it's always a good sign. You know why? In the Bible, when kings aren't sleeping, it's because God's working on their hearts. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He couldn't sleep. It says his sleep break from him there in the King James Version, right? He, he wasn't able to sleep. And God gave him a vision. Vision, the famous Daniel 2 vision we're familiar with, the statue of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, right? Then you also have Darius. Remember, Daniel was in the lion's den, and he just couldn't sleep that night either because God was doing something special. Well, I don't know if the way he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep because he was feeling guilty, probably, is what I'm thinking for Darius. But now we have a king not sleeping again. And uh, he does something. Uh, <laughs> some people have suggested that why he did this is because it might help him go to sleep. He had the official book of records brought in and read to him. And I don't know about you, but reading the chronological of the official business of the city might put a person to sleep. Um, however, I like to think that it was something different. I think Ahasuerus was a, a workaholic. Not a good one, but one nonetheless. He's trying to make, you know, if I can't sleep, I might as well get some work done. And as he's listening to things being read to him, all of a sudden, God providentially, not only does he keep him awake, he providentially has this. He's listening, and I can imagine the, the, the reader. 
On this date, Bigtha and Terrace tried to take the king's life, and Mordecai overheard the king's life about to be taken, and he told Esther, Esther told the king, and Mordecai saved the king's life. And all of a sudden, the king said, wait, 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 what did you just say? Mordecai, by this time, it's almost morning. Isn't it amazing how God times things? He says, has anything been done for Mordecai? He saved my life. This story, of course, is in Esther chapter 6. Has anything been done? And here's what the king's servants who said in verse 3. It says, nothing has been done for him. And just at that point, they hear a door open. I, or maybe a knock. I don't know how it worked. Azura says, who's in the king's court? And they said, oh, it's Haman. Haman came in. Now, you know why Haman's coming in. Haman had the gallows built. He's coming in because he wants to get Mordecai to hang on the gallows. Meanwhile, King Ahasuerus is over here thinking, man, what am I going to do for Mordecai? I need some good advice. And in comes Haman. Talk about a twist of fate. If you want to ever do a movie on this, it would be a good one, right? This is incredible. Then Haman walks in and King says, Haman, I am glad to see you. I need some help. I need some counsel. You're my right-hand man. So uh, I want to ask you a question. And here's what he asks, verse 6. What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> Haman's sitting there saying, man, that's me. Can you believe it? He's asking me about what to do to me? I could tell him what to do. Well, king, I suggest that uh, you get your royal robe that you've worn and put it on him. And then you know your special horse from the king's stables, that you, that you put this man on that horse wearing your special robe. And then get one of your high court officials to hold that horse and run through the center of the city saying, this is what's done to the man who the Lord, uh, the king delights to honor. And Ahasuerus said, Haman, that is excellent. Excellent. Now, I want you to go do that to Mordecai the Jew. He came to get rid of Mordecai, and he ends up exalting Mordecai. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing because God is in charge. You know, uh, Haman's not feeling too well now. Uh, it's been a rough 24 hours. A rough 12 hours, maybe. I don't know how. It's not, not a long time. He goes back, depressed. Uh, this is actually verse 12. It says he went back to his house mourning and with his head covered. I mean, he hasn't gone too far in the day, and things aren't going well. He tells his wife, and then his wife says this to him, and I find this fascinating. She says, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. She saw it coming. Um, wow. Well, after all that's happened, at least he has good news that night. Haman gets to eat with the king and queen again. So you see the story is brought in. Mordecai wipes off his eyes. Uh, the, 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 the 
couriers, if you will, from the king come and pick him up, and they not pick him up, but take him to the, the special dinner. They're sitting down, and they're just about to sit and eat, and Ahasuerus can't take it any longer. She didn't tell him the first day. She didn't tell him at that night. Now he's waited 24 hours, and finally he just starts out in verse 2. What is your petition, Queen Esther? Verse 2 of chapter 7. It shall be granted to you. Um, where am I at? And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. I mean, he's just not just saying, what do you want? He said, I promise you, I'm going to do what you ask. Just tell me, what is it? And Esther comes up with a fantastic response. She just, um, yeah. The king says, who is it? And she gives words. Do you notice the words she uses to describe him are words that are used to describe Satan? I found that fascinating. Let's, let's read it here. This is in verse 5. Verse, excuse me, verse uh, 6. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So here's what happened. I skipped the part. The queen, after she's told, what will you do? He said, if I have found favor in your sight, I'm begging for my life and the life of my people. He's like, What? She goes, if we had been sold as slaves, I found this fascinating. She goes, if we had been sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. Although that would have been a terrible loss to your empire. But our lives are going to be taken, please. And he said, who would do that? And that's when she says, this wicked adversary and enemy, Haman. Haman is terrified. The king is furious. And you know what happens? The king leaves in anger, and uh, according to the typical custom of that time, this is a banquet, and when they had their banquets, they're not like we have our banquets. Um, do you ever remember eating so much that you couldn't sit up straight? None of you had that problem? I have. That doesn't say much for my personality, and maybe it's the area I need to work on. Okay. But I remember as a child, I would sit further and further back in the booth when we went to Ponderosa Steakhouse for all you could eat. And after the third plate, I couldn't sit up straight because there was just so much there. Well, in Persian culture, they solved that problem. You didn't have to sit up. You laid down while you were eating, okay? You kind of reclined on a couch. And so here they are. The king gets up. He's angry. He leaves. Esther's laying on her couch. And Haman's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. The only person who can save me is the queen. And so he goes and throws himself on her couch. Only a desperate, unthinking man would do that. And the king comes back, and I don't know if he touched her or not. You're not given the full implication in, in, in the Bible. But when the king's back, he sees, and he said, will you assault my wife before my very eyes? It says at that point, a hood was put over his face and he was not going to see the light of day again. You know, a children's book that tells this story puts it this way. The biter gets bitten. The biter gets bitten. I like children's story titles. Sometimes they are. Um, have you ever been bent on giving even with someone? Yes? You know what the Bible says. Avenge not yourselves. 
right? God will take care of things in his time. I was reading a book called Great Men and Women of the Bible, and here's what they said at this point. Haman had already given Mordecai, it's just one sentence. Haman had already given Mordecai what he had chosen for himself, and now what he had chosen for Mordecai is given him. Here he is, head covered with a hood, about to die. And one of the servants said, hey, the gallows that were made for Mordecai. Hang him on those. Do you realize they were built in just one night at Haman's house, and the city knew what was going on. And now Mordecai is hung on the very thing that was used hopefully to kill his enemy, which did not happen. Praise God. Does God take care of his own? Was there working and praying going on? And praying and working, both were going on. You know, uh, there is a problem, though. Even though Haman is dead, um, there's still a, a problem. And what is it? The law, right? And the law of the Persians could not be changed. The law said that on this day, 13th day of the 12th month, that the Jews are all going to be destroyed. How is that going to be changed? If you can't change the law, well, I think people have figured out how to do this, right? You make another law that nullifies the law, and that's what is done. Um, You can read about this. Um, She, Esther, goes in again before the king and begs him uh, for the life of her, her people. The king uh, tells her, I've already done this. I've done this. I've done this. What more do you want? Here, take my ring, write a letter in my name, do whatever you want. And uh, a decree is sent out by Mordecai under the king's name in which it said this, on the 13th day of the 12th month, Jews get together and defend yourselves and take vengeance on any of the ones who are coming against you. You're allowed to take they're plunder. You're allowed to take their household goods and everything. It's interesting to note that they actually did not. But they were given permission to do that. Um, just an interesting decree to reverse what had been taken before. What was the results? Verse 15 of chapter 8. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the kings had joy, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. You know, um, if you read about this, a feast was actually set up. Chapter 9, verses 18 and 19 says there's a feast called the Feast of Purim. And they named it Purim because Haman cast the lot called Pur to determine when they were going to die. And so now they took that name and used it to show their victory. What was a sign of their death, they now are using to show as a sign of their victory. Uh, the Feast of Purim. Mordecai writes an official letter, and it's been kept uh, as a feast since then. This is found in verses 20 through 23. You know, uh, I believe, without a question, that we still need heroes today. Heroes like Esther who are willing to stand up when things are not easy. People are willing to put their lives 
on the line. People are willing to stand for the right, though the heavens fall. These heroes aren't necessarily found in the battlefield, like Clara Barton, or saving kingdoms from dark, sinister plots like Esther. We need heroes at home. We need heroes at school. We need heroes at work. We need people who are willing to stand wherever they're at and say, I'm going to do what is right because God has brought me into this world for such a time as this. You were, without a question in my mind, brought into this world for such a time as this. I'm looking at people because God doesn't make mistakes. It's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident you exist in 2021 on Cape Cod or wherever you exist, but you're here today. I know that God has a plan for my life. I know God has a plan for your life. And so for such a time as this, you exist. Will you take your place on God's side like Esther did? Will you say, God, I'm willing to be here for you at such a time as this. I want to be here for you. I may be sitting here, I don't know all the plans you have for me, but God, I know you don't make mistakes. I'm here for a reason. Will you say I'm here for such a time as this? Amen. Let's pray. There's a lot of things that happen in our lives, Father, that everyone else don't know about. Father, there are circumstances we face that are unique to each one of us. And yet you raised us for such a time as this. Please bless us. We need you, and we're so thankful that we can come boldly to you and that you will use us at this time. Bless my family here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.